This is Saturday night, the attendant complained. Streets are full of traffic, even with the damn siren. Carella walked to the unmarked sedan parked at the curb. Detective Cotton Hawes, sitting behind the wheel, rolled down his frost-rhymed window and said, How is she? We've got a homicide, Carella answered. The boy was eighteen years old, and he had been picked up not ten minutes ago for breaking off car aerials. He had broken off twelve on the same street, strewing them behind him like a Johnny Appleseed planting radios. A cruising squad car had spotted him as he tried to twist off the aerial of a 1966 Cadillac. He was drunk, or stoned, or both. And when Sergeant Murchison at the muster desk asked him to read the Miranda Escobedo warning signs on the wall, printed in both English and Spanish, he could read neither. The arresting patrolman took the boy to the squad room upstairs, where Detective Bert Kling was talking to Hawes on the telephone. He signaled for the patrolman to wait with his prisoner on the bench outside the slatted wooden rail divider, and then buzzed Murchison at the desk downstairs. Dave, he said, we've got a homicide in the alley of the 11th Street Theater. You want to get it rolling? Right, Murchison said and hung up. Homicides are a common occurrence in this city, and each one is treated identically. The grisly horror of violent death reduced to routine by a police force that would otherwise be overwhelmed by statistics. At the mustard desk switchboard downstairs, while upstairs Kling waved the patrolman and his prisoner into the squad room, Sergeant Murchison first reported the murder to Captain Frick, who commanded the 87th Precinct, and then to Lieutenant Burns, who commanded the 87th Detective Squad. He then phoned Homicide, who in turn set into motion an escalating process of notification that spread cancerously to include the police laboratory, the telegraph, telephone, and teletype bureau at headquarters, the medical examiner, the district attorney, the district commander of the detective division, the chief of detectives, and finally, the police commissioner himself. Someone had thoughtlessly robbed a young woman of her life, and now a lot of sleepy-eyed men were being shaken out of their beds on a cold October night. Upstairs, the clock on the squad room wall read 12.30 a.m. The boy who had broken off twelve car aerials sat in a chair alongside Bert Kling's desk. Kling took one look at him and yelled to Miss Scolo in the clerical office to bring in a pot of strong coffee. Across the room, the drunk in the detention cage wanted to know where he was. In a little while, they would release him with a warning to try to stay sober till morning. But the night was young. They arrived alone or in pairs, blowing on their hands, shoulders hunched against the bitter cold, breaths pluming whitely from their lips. They marked the dead girl's position in the alleyway. They took a picture. They made drawings of the scene. They searched for the murder weapon and found none. And then they stood around, speculating on sudden death. In this alleyway, alongside a theater, the policemen were the stars and the celebrities, 
and a curious crowd thronged the sidewalk where a barricade had already been set up, anxious for a glimpse of these men with their shields pinned to their overcoats, the identifying playbills of law enforcement, without which you could not tell the civilians from the plainclothes cops. Monaghan and Monroe had arrived from homicide, and they watched dispassionately now as the assistant medical examiner fluttered around the dead girl. They were both wearing black overcoats, black mufflers, and black fedoras, both heavier men than Carella, who stood between them with the lean look of an overtrained athlete, a pained expression on his face. He'd done some job on her, Monroe said. Son of a bitch, Monaghan added. You identified her yet? I'm waiting for the M.E. to get...